Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 31 and work through chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, I pray that you would let this text be over top of us, that we get underneath it, that we let your word be the authority in our life. Father, bring conviction to any part of our hearts that carries bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, Malice, Father, by the power of the Spirit, let us put these things away. Father, we pray that we could imitate you. Never in our own strength, but with your Spirit, Father, you can work this love that's your love out of our lives because of the miracle of the new birth. Father, I pray that it would be true of us, and I pray this in Christ's name, amen. If we look at the text before us, if we look at the text that we've been working through the last three weeks, we see that as Paul gets to the practical application of uh, living the Christian life, He works from our works, and then he gets to our hearts, and then he talks about a love that flows out of our hearts. He called us not to lie to one another, very practical, to be honest with one another. He taught us to not let the sun go down on our anger, to not have sinful anger, but to trust God as we go to bed at night with any relational conflict, the bitterness not grow in our hearts. He said, don't steal from one another, but rather work hard so that you can share with others. Those are all practical ways we we love one another. And then, as we, he, he gets to the thing that attaches so closely to our hearts, and, and, and that's our words, 
And last week we considered what it would look like not to have corrupting words, but rather words that build up and give grace. And then today we're going to get into what's going on in the heart. Even as, as you look at your notes, you see that we're to put off vengeance and unforgiveness. And then he doesn't say put on kindness and a tender heart in a forgiving spirit, but he says be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. So put off this old clothing that used to be you and be who you are now. Be what God has called you to. And then he sums that up. He describes that as walking in love. So that's where we're going. And so you could say this message culminates in what it looks like to walk in love at a heart level. Just a reminder, love, agape love, is self-sacrifice for the good of another. You get harmed and the other gets blessed. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples something very important. After he's already told them, apart from me, you can do nothing. You need to abide in me. He says, by this my Father is glorified. Jesus is telling us how the Father is glorified in our lives here. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As you bear fruit in your life, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, God is glorified. Because it couldn't happen apart from him. And then he says this, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now, we just sang words that said this. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Meaning the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that has always existed. You see, that's why only the Christian God can be love. God is love. Allah is not love. He would have no one to love for all eternity. But we feast on a love that's beyond our time. That's what Jesus is saying here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says this, abide in my love. Why does he tell that to his disciples? Because often we're not going to abide in his love love. But he's saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in my love, which is the same love that the Father 
have for me, which is beyond our comprehension. And then in verse 12 of John 15, he says this, this is my commandment, and all of our ears should perk up. This is Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And we ought to say, how has he loved us? He says in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What does agape love look like? One person being harmed and another person gaining from the self-sacrificial love. There's no greater love than that kind of love. And then he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. What did he command? That you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 17, he says, these things I command you so that you'll love one another. If you say, what's the point? <laughs> what's the, why do I still exist? Why wasn't I zapped to heaven the moment I was saved? And in, in God's ultimate wisdom, he wanted to be glorified in your life. And the culmination of him being glorified in your life is you loving one another as he has loved you. In fact, in John 13, just two chapters before this, Jesus introduced this new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are, you also are to love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I can tell you the saddest part of going through a church split is reading a verse like this. They will, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, it's how you know. He can't say it. That, that, that is the point of all other things. Love always rises to the top. Here's how Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You can know all mysteries. You can speak in tongues of angels. You can speak perfectly about true things about God. But love crowns it all. Without love, whatever virtue we may think we have, it's corrupted. In Mark 12, 28, we read, and one of the scribes came up 
and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Once again, Jesus is about to answer a question that all of us should be hanging on his every word. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. He gives us bonus material. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love rises to the top. It's how you know you're a Christian. You read 1 John, a book that's meant to help people discern whether or not they've been truly born of God. And the most constant test within that, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. The greatest test is love for one another. Paul says in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. All the Old Testament law. What if, if you funneled it down, what would it funnel to? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And so last week, we talked about how the tongue is attached to our hearts. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means one of the most devastating things we do as those who are born again with insight into our hearts is when we speak words that maybe even surprise us. <laughs> but even here, this is a blessing. How do you know if carbon monoxide is filling your house? Well, hopefully you have a carbon monoxide detector that begins to beep. You have that for your heart. It's called your mouth. Your mouth speaks and your heart comes onto the scene. You've never spoken words that didn't come out of the heart and we're often deceived about what's in our heart until it comes out. Until a difficult circumstance challenges us and then all of a sudden ugliness comes out and we want to blame circumstances, but Christ says no. If it was in there, or if it came out of your mouth, it was in there. Your circumstances can't cause sinful speech to come out of your mouth. It can't. Your circumstances are the things that shake up your heart to a point where you can hear it. And so as Christians, we ought not despair 
when sin comes out of our mouth, but we ought to repent and go to Christ. We can see something inside that we need to put off. And so we were told to put off all corrupting talk that brings death. We talked about all sorts of different forms of that. And then we considered talk that builds up. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, someone said to me last week, kind of funny, and I was thankful for it. That's how you know the Spirit's working. They said, every time my wife and I began to talk to each other, we had to stop. All day long, we've been trying to talk, and we have to stop. Thanks for ruining our marriage. <laughs> Cry face. Because in the new man, we're only supposed to speak words that build up. That's it. That fit the occasion. That come with grace. When we speak other types of words, it's like being in the new man with the old clothes on. And so we considered our talk. One of the quotes that just struck me in John MacArthur's commentary, he said this. And, and MacArthur's known for not being afraid to speak the truth. To stand up to opponents and be honest about the truth. But he said this, in light of the text that said that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, as Paul has already said, the mature Christian not only speak truth, but speaks it in love. Raw truth is seldom appropriate and is often destructive. And then he says this, don't miss this. We have been saved in grace. We are kept in grace. Therefore, we are to live and speak in grace. Just as grace supremely characterizes God, it should also characterize his children. All of our life as a believer, is in the realm of grace. And so God expects when we open our mouths to speak words of grace that build up. Yes, speak the truth. Yes, make the hard phone calls. Yes, have the hard conversations in love, in sincerity of heart. So then he gets real practical in verse 31. This is point one in your notes. Put off all vengeance and unforgiveness. Look at what he says. He just stacks up words that are similar to one another, but give us a different picture of this ugly cancer. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. 
So why did he stack up words like this? Let's just look at them. Let's just take the time to think about them. Bitterness. Armitage Robinson defines it as an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. An embittered, resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Here's how bitterness works. Bitterness replays a wrong, or true wrong maybe. It could be a perceived wrong. Bitterness is indiscriminative, but it plays a wrong in your mind over and over and over again. It becomes a real. Bitterness grows when you've been wronged and you play it over and over and over again in your mind. It's like a cancer that kills slowly. Bitterness is the opposite of life-giving. Just as cancer kills, bitterness kills. And the reason why it grows is because the wrong gets bigger and bigger every time it gets replayed. And so reconciliation seems less and less plausible. You feel more more self-justified, the bigger the wrong gets. And the wrong gets bigger and bigger that's been done against you, the more you let it replay in your mind. And obviously, the false hope of bitterness is revenge. If they could get and feel half the pain that I felt, then finally I'll be free. That's the lie bitterness says. And so he says, put away all wrath, which has to do with revenge. It's a state of intense anger with the implication of passionate outbursts. Something needs to be done about it. Someone needs to pay. And he says, put away anger. He's already spoken in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The devil sees when we're angry. The devil sees an opportunity when a Christian goes to sleep with bitterness in their heart towards another believer. It's an opportunity to divide where the Spirit is uniting. And so the greatest narrative teller of victimhood comes from the devil himself. Look at this wrong. Look at it. This isn't right. Revenge needs to be taken. And so it builds inside of us, and the devil says, take it into your own hands. Take revenge into your own hands. Don't miss what I'm saying. Anyone who's being abused needs to bring it to the light. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about us replaying a wrong, a, a brother or sister in Christ. We sin against one another. None of us are perfect. And rather than be able to work through it with the love of Christ in our hearts, bitterness grows and the devil wants it to grow. He wants night after night to be stacked on top of itself. So look at Romans 12. Let's look at anger that is seeking revenge and wrath. Let's just get some practical help. Romans 12, 9. Here's what he says. Let love be genuine. The reason why he needs to say this is because our own hearts can trick us. We can call something love when it's not love. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Now hold that thought, okay? Let's just put the question, well, what's evil? And we'll set it up over here. He says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brother, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Give to one another. And then he says this in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. Now let's just run a wrong through your mind. You plug in your own wrong that a Christian has done against you. What am I supposed to do in light of that wrong? He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See, the better person is wise in their own sight. They know the circumstance. They're sure of the justice that's demanded in it. And then he says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. You and I are not to demand payment, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. See, there it is. The person that's angry, that's about to sin in their anger, goes to sleep in their anger. But when we went to Psalm 4, where that text is being quoted from, David is being wronged by almost the majority of those in Israel and he's going to sleep with peace. 
because he brought it to the Lord. He's leaving vengeance in the Lord's hands. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. All right, now let's grab this question. What does it mean to abhor evil? Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the trap. Christians will be trapped in evil when they repay evil for evil. Maybe it was evil what was done against you. Maybe it was wrong. Maybe what you run through your head is actually true. And because it's true, let's say you say, I'm going to make them pay. I'm, I'm going to make them suffer because I've been hurt. Now you've become overcome by evil. The way we aren't overcome by evil is we respond to evil with good. Someone will say, well, you realize the cost of that? Yeah, now we're to agape love. Someone always has to pay when, when a sin is sinned against one another. It's just the facts. If someone were to come to my house and break a $50 lamp, there's only two options. Either the person who broke it says, well, let me buy the lamp, and they're going to pay for it, or I'm going to say, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, and then I'm going to pay for it. But where there's sin, there's always payment. But Jesus made the payment for our good. And so we're told to put away wrath, and we're called to put away anger, and we're called to put away clamor. It's a loud cry. It's a scream. It's when a house is filled with angry yelling. This is loud. Someone says, what's the difference between anger and clamor? Clamor is always loud and aggressive and angry. Coming, coming out of a heart that feels totally ripped off. And then the next word, slander. This is much more like a whisper. This is angry whispering about someone else that's also meant to harm, just like the loud words are, only now it's with whispers. Now it's with secrets. You know, a whisper separates close friends. Satan loves all that. And then finally in the list, he has malice, the feeling of hostility, strong dislike, with a possible implication of desiring to do them harm. It's a hateful feeling. So the more the replay of the wrong, the anger builds inside and it grows into the, a disease that ultimately 
won't end in love. Agape love won't be there. Vengeance will be what's left. Here's what F.F. Bruce says. He says, so lest the spirit be grieved, let everything be put away which menaces unity of heart and purpose among believers. Annoying pinpricks and flaring outbursts of rage, public quarreling and slanderous whispers, these and all other forms of maliciousness and ill will must be abandoned. Never are we more like Satan than when you are vengeful towards one another. And never are you more like Christ when you forgive one another. Look at verse 32. Now he's not telling us to put on, but he's saying, be. In the new man, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word kind is krestoi, and it pertains to that which is pleasant or easy. Be easy towards one another. You know, we've all said this before. We've all said things like, that person is just a difficult person. And maybe if you have any light inside yourself, you've had the grace to say, sometimes I can be a difficult person. And another way to say that is, is, Sometimes I'm not very loving. And that person over there that always seems difficult seems unloving. The word gets translated both ways throughout the New Testament. Jesus says his burden is easy. Same word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Tender-hearted, not hard-hearted. A tender-hearted heart is more apt to put yourself in the other person's shoes and feel their side of the story. A tender heart has lets light in from God and sees their own struggle, their own sin, and therefore gives grace to the one that may have offended them. A tender heart is malleable. It's responsive to God's word. It's responsive to God's people. He says, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's what, that's what we're to do. Paul knows Christians will sin against one another. That's why he calls them to be forgiving towards one another. It's not a surprise to God. He knows that the moment you're born again, we're not in a state of glorification. 
So he says we're to be forgiving to one another. As God in Christ forgave you. And isn't that the power right there? Isn't that where the argument is won? Isn't this where our hearts ought to melt towards one another as we consider this sinless Son of God? You know, at Camp Judson, Jim Fain, the biblical counselor, he, he says, whenever you're angry, ask yourself, what are you wanting? What are you wanting? What do you think you're owed? Now, don't put that in a gospel perspective because then the answer is, I'm not owed anything. <laughs> right? What do, what, what do we deserve? And he talked about how he's driving and just the look on his face, he taught this to his kids. And his daughter said, Daddy, what are you wanting right now? Just saw how his face was. It's a good question. It shows us what narrative we're running through our hearts, how we've been so wronged, how we have such a justifying anger against one another. But forgiving is God in Christ forgave you. You are never more like Christ than when you are forgiving. Think about this. I think he's speaking to believers here. Think about this. Any wrong a believer has done against you, there's wrath for sins. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? There is wrath for sin. That's part of what's supposed to calm us down. God doesn't let things go. But whenever a Christian sins against one another, that sin, that wrath has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. And God's vengeance and God's wrath is already satisfying. And then we, as forgiven sinners, say, not for me, not for me. I'm not satisfied. They got to pay more. See, that's the picture. As God in Christ forgives us, so we ought to forgive one another. And then he says, therefore... Be like God, right? Be imitators of God. The word is mimitai. It's where we get the word mimic. Mimic God. We're to be imitators of God. Look at what it says. As beloved children. That's the point. You have to see how loved you are. You've been invited into a love beyond your time. What he said all the way through the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us as adoption to himself as sons. You were encapsulated in this, in this love before you began. In chapter 2, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive 
together with Christ. You were, your new birth was brought about in love. And then Ephesians 3.16, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What for? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The idea is your whole life is to be rooted in love so that now our words and our actions and our giving and our truthfulness and our speaking is all rooted in the love that's been shown us in Christ. And so in verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, rather speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. And then verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the point. What an exciting endeavor. Nothing will challenge your autonomy. Nothing will challenge your selfishness. Nothing will challenge us more than to be called to love one another, because that's where we decide, am I going to die to myself? And by the way, this was the very beginning of following Christ. Only those that are willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, die daily, are able to be a disciple of Christ. But until Christ returns, this is what we're called to. We might as well close shop if we're not up for what God has called us to as believers. This is the point of your life. The greatest gift we could ever have is fellowship with God. The second greatest gift is having fellowship with one another. A sense of belonging with others in a loving relationship, we all know we're meant for it. And God has birthed out new people, given them new hearts, given the Spirit of God, and says, love one another as I have loved you. And he says, walk in that love. This is a continual walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, that's where you pay. To walk in love, it's described as a sacrifice to God. It will cost you to love other sinful people that wrong us. That's just the way it is. Payment will be made. But you've been rooted and grounded in love. Just like Paul said, Christ's love has been poured into my heart. So his love has been poured into your heart. 
And by the grace of God, we're able to love 